what was it like to cover President Donald Trump? Hi, I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. I covered the Trump White House for four years. As a regional reporter, I was not one of those stars you'd see in the front two rows of the briefing room. I was in the back of the room, or standing in the aisle before I got a seat. In Episode 3 of Covering Trump, we walked together through President Donald Trump's first day in office. He talked American carnage. His critics wore pussy hats. And then we wade through Trump's record staff turnover, his bashing of aides on social media, and more bad personnel practices. It was not simply fake news. It was my life. My get up in the morning and see what the most powerful man in the world wrote on Twitter overnight or blurted out during a call into a morning news show. Then try to make sense of it all. I include a warning for this episode. There is adult language, although not necessarily from the mouths of adults. Episode 3, Trump Talk, Turnover, and Tweets. Which Donald Trump would show up on Inauguration Day 2017? The happy victor who vowed to work across the aisle when he realized he had won the White House in 2016? Or the fake newsmonger itching to do battle with permanent Washington? The answer is the latter, but with an expanded vocabulary. Standing outside the Capitol building, with former presidents, sitting senators, and notables from both parties assembled nearby, Trump did not try to smooth the waters when he was sworn into office. To the contrary, he savaged the Washington establishment, including members of his own party. He painted a dark picture of the country he was about to govern. Yes, he heralded the orderly and peaceful transition of power. But the most quoted line of the address followed talk of crime, gangs, and drugs corroding American culture. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. It was like no other inaugural address I had ever heard. After the new president's 60-minute speech, my colleague Gary Martin and I returned to the Review-Journal's bureau in the National Press Building on foot and via the metro. I'd been to one inauguration before, George W. Bush's first swearing-in in 2001. When I left the Bush event, the National Mall was buzzing with joyful supporters, but also student groups and others who showed up not to cheer on the winner. You could tell many of them did not vote for Bush but to soak in a moment of history. The scene on January 20, 2017, was nothing like that. The National Mall and surrounding streets were pure chaos. Women in pink pussy hats competed for space with Trump supporters in red MAGA caps who were heckled by intoxicated anti-Trumpers as they left the speech. It was scary. Trump saw something completely different. He saw a crowd that was the biggest ever. Trump claimed his inauguration audience went all the way back to the Washington Monument. Speaking at CIA headquarters the next day, he estimated one million to a million and a half well-wishers had shown up to see him take the oath of office. Trump saw a gathering even greater than the record crowd that turned out to watch the historic 2009 inauguration of Barack Obama, America's first black president. 
Side-by-side photos of the Capitol Mall during the 2009 and 2017 events exposed how wrong Trump was. Rather than recognize reality, Trump trashed a news network for broadcasting an empty field and severely underestimating his crowd size. On his first full day in office, Trump became a full employment machine for fact-checkers. On that day, Trump also sabotaged the credibility of his first press secretary, Sean Spicer. In his book, The Briefing, Politics, the Press, and the President, Spicer wrote, I plan to be a press secretary in the model of my predecessors, Ari Fleischer, Tony Snow, Dana Perino, Marlon Fitzwater, Mike McCurry, Robert Gibbs, Josh Ernest. I will get the facts out, articulate the president's priorities and agenda, Spicer wrote. He also offered he would try not to commit news myself. That goal did not survive the weekend. Trump pressed Spicer to challenge the media's crowd estimates. Saturday, Spicer dutifully called an unscheduled briefing where he groused about deliberately false reporting on what was the largest audience ever to witness an inauguration. Then he left the room without taking questions, which was like waving a red flag in front of a bull. Thank you guys for being here tonight. I will see you on Monday. Arguably, there's a way to add up the video viewership across the globe with YouTube, FaceTube, network streaming, and other technology to come up with the largest audience ever claim. Spicer later made that argument as Team Trump pivoted from actual crowd size on the mall to digital eyeballs. I felt badly for Sean. He had landed his dream job, White House press secretary. But the only way he felt he could keep it was to say things he had to know weren't true. Trump demanded loyalty, but he did not return it. Six months later, Spicer resigned under pressure. Trump, of course, thought he was his own best spokesperson, and he had his very own briefing room. Twitter. With the aid of his cell phone, Trump blasted Republicans whom he considered disloyal, Democrats who opposed him, celebrities who mocked him, and anyone who irritated him. In his book, One Damn Thing After Another, Former Trump Attorney General Bill Barr revealed that Trump once told him the secret of a really great tweet. It is just the right amount of crazy. As a candidate for the office and during his early days in the White House, Trump could dominate the news cycle with one cryptic post. Here's an infamous early tweet that led the news for some time. It's from March 4, 2017. Terrible. Just found out that Obama had my wires tapped in Trump Tower just before the victory. Nothing found. This is McCarthyism. Morning news regulars bristled with indignation that a president would so carelessly lob bizarre accusations that his predecessor was guilty of committing a felony. It turned out the president's paranoia about Trump Tower being wiretapped was off base, but not entirely. We later learned that the FBI did engage in surveillance of Trump campaign associates. It covers surveillance and many other things, Trump later told Tucker Carlson of the wiretap tweet. Voila, Trump was able to defend his accusations. In a way, it's genius. The president's sloppy way of talking effectively turned even his critics into Trump translators. 
who would explore and explain what the nation's chief executive probably meant to say. The new formula? A. Trump makes unsupported accusation. B. Talking heads berate Trump for crazy talk. C. Trump recalibrates in big media report that, although wrong, he had a point. Supporters argue that Trump wasn't a politician, so it's wrong to expect him to communicate in Beltway speak. Actually, he was president, so of course he's a politician. Trump conducted foreign policy on Twitter, and he undermined the work of diplomats in the process. Consider this little gem. I told Rex Tillerson, our wonderful Secretary of State, he's wasting his time trying to negotiate with Little Rocket Man. Little Rocket Man would be North Korean strongman Kim Jong-un. Kim responded by calling Trump a mentally deranged dotard. Oddly, the exchanges preceded the first summit between a sitting American president and North Korean leader, a meeting which many critics found ill-advised and reckless, and that Trump met with Kim without having won any concessions for a summit that would raise Kim's profile on the world stage. Ahead of the big meet, Kim gained face. Trump got nothing. Although Trump didn't see it that way, Trump later revealed Kim wrote him beautiful letters and... We fell in love. And we'll go back and forth. And then we fell in love. Okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters. And they're great letters. We fell in love. Trump fired people on Twitter. His first chief of staff, his first secretary of state, both of his attorneys general. None of these individuals had reason to be surprised Trump fired them. But they also had to endure Trump savaging their reputations as he kicked them out the door. In March 2018, Trump tweeted that his once wonderful Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was becoming a former statesman. Trump announced CIA Director Mike Pompeo would become our new Secretary of State and thanked Tillerson for his service. The spirit of collegial parting did not last. Months later, Trump tweeted that Tillerson lacked the mental capacity needed, and he was dumb as a rock. Trump burned through staff, bigly. He went through four chiefs of staff, four press secretaries, and four national security advisors, if you don't include the two temporary NSAs, in one term. His turnover was so spectacular that scholar Catherine Dunn Tempest put up an analysis on Brookings' website that documented the breathtaking churn of Trump's A-team. When the four years were over, she calculated a turnover rate of 92 percent, the largest in a list that begins in 1980. Tempest devised a new term, serial turnover, for positions that were held by multiple individuals over the four years. Some aides, like Pompeo, left a position because they were promoted, so their departures were not a mark against Trump. Occasionally, aides just up and quit because they'd had enough. Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohn, for example, resigned over tariffs. Others, like Spicer and First Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, fell into the rubric RUP for Resigned Under Pressure. The most famous Trump firing occurred early on when Trump fired FBI Chief James Comey. When Trump first took office, there was speculation that the new president would fire Comey immediately. After all, 
It was under Comey's watch that the FBI began looking into possible ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. We now know that by May, it should have been clear that there was no there there. But also, Comey's decision to speak publicly twice about an FBI probe concerning Hillary Clinton's email server, that probe also went nowhere, made Comey suspect to Democrats as well. Trump had every right to fire Comey for being, well, a showboat, but he did so in the worst possible way. The president did not summon the longtime public servant to the Oval Office on May 9, 2017, where he could tell him the bad news face-to-face. Trump didn't even delegate the task of dismissing Comey to his chief of staff. Oh, no. Trump fired Comey in a way that seemed designed to inflict maximum public humiliation. Trump sent Keith Schiller, a former Trump bodyguard then working in the White House, to FBI headquarters with a dismissal letter for Comey. It was a fool's errand, because unbeknownst to the quick-draw Trump, Comey was at the FBI's Los Angeles office that day. It so happened that the room where Comey was addressing FBI staffers had a row of TV screens broadcasting the news of the day. Comey learned he was fired when he saw the news flash on the television screens. At first, the G-men thought the news bulletins were a prank, and he laughed. Then he figured it out. Networks captured footage of Comey boarding the FBI plane as he headed home after he got the news. By the end of the day, Trump looked like a total weasel. The former star of The Apprentice, who couldn't deliver his trademark line, You're fired. In real life. Sean Spicer later revealed that the White House could not find a single Republican senator who would defend Trump's firing of Comey that night. Then, Trump made a bad story even worse. He changed the administration's official reason for why he fired Comey. The official version, documented by then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Deputy AG Rod Rosenstein, had been that Comey had to go because of his rogue remarks about the Hillary Clinton probe. Critics were skeptical of Trump's account, that out of some sort of chivalry he objected to Comey's treatment of the former Secretary of State but he had a defensible cover story. Two days later, Trump blew up the whole charade. During an interview with NBC's Lester Holt, Trump offered that he didn't fire the FBI chief because of his treatment of Clinton, and that he desired to fire Comey even if Sessions and Rosenstein did not recommend it, because the Russia probe was a made-up story meant to discredit his victory in November. I was going to fire my decision. It was not. You had made the decision before they came in. The I, I was going to fire Comey. Uh, I, there's no good time to do it, by the way. Uh, they, because in your letter you said I, I accepted accepted their recommendation. Yeah, well, so you also, had already made the decision. Oh, I, I was going to fire regardless of recommendation. So was- I woke up in the middle of the night of the Holt interview in a panic. When I started covering Trump, I thought at some point Trump would begin to grow in office. That view sounds hopelessly naive today. But I thought that Trump would have to see that his office was so much more important than his own ego, and he'd mature. Because how could any man or woman not grow in a job with such awesome responsibilities? That night it hit me that the transformation I had expected, and yes, hoped for, was not to be. For no good reason other than because he felt like it, Trump had just made Sessions, Rosenstein, and press staff who repeated the fictional Comey firing rationale look like dupes and liars. 
it had become painfully clear that Trump would steamroll over top advisors' most valued possessions, their precious reputations, just because, if only for a fleeting moment, he felt like it. Within weeks, Rosenstein named Bob Mueller special counsel to oversee the Trump-Russian investigation, which slogged on for another 22 months. If Trump hadn't fired Comey, there would have been no special prosecutor. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back in a flash with more fake news. The Biden administration is constantly finding new ways to fail and then blaming others for it, except when it is intentionally failing on issues like the border and energy policy. Well, we're not going to let them get away with that. I'm Greg Columbus. Join Jim Garrity of National Review and me each weekday for the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'll give you the good, bad, and crazy news of the day and lots of laughs, too. Find us right here on the Ricochet Audio Network at ricochet.com or wherever you get your podcasts. People often ask me what I felt when Trump reeled about fake news. The answer? I just figured he was talking about somebody else. I remember one day when I was sitting and working in the briefing room. There was no briefing, but it was a good place to work while keeping an eye on who got into the press office. Three New York Times reporters casually were sitting around, so I was not surprised when a press staffer peeked through the door and waved them in. I told my editors to watch for a New York Times exclusive, and it came out later in the day. Did I feel envy? Yes, I did. During the first three and a half years, I had no exclusive. I did participate in two small group interviews, however, that gave regional reporters a chance to sit down with Trump. Trump often spoke of his regard for regional media, although he usually was referring to local TV news, not print. Trump seemed to enjoy the two sit-downs. He was a good listener, and he focused on each person individually. Once, when a male reporter kept asking overly long questions, a female colleague was clearly frustrated at her inability to get in a question. Trump saw it, seemed amused by her situation, and made a point of calling on her. In those sessions, Trump's answers were less bombastic than at press conferences and more thoughtful. I wish the public could see more of that man. Sit-downs with Trump and other top aides gave regional reporters a chance to ask questions and follow-up questions on local issues. For Nevada, the signature federal controversy involved a proposed Yucca Mountain nuclear waste repository which the late Democratic Majority Leader Harry Reid, a son of Searchlight Nevada, effectively killed when Barack Obama was president. Support for the nuclear waste project had become the third rail of politics in the Silver State. The politician who wanted to win Nevada could not touch it. Nonetheless, in 2016 on the campaign trail, Trump was coy about his position on Yucca Mountain. He noted that he owned a hotel in Las Vegas, which would give him reason to oppose the project, He said he'd deliver a position before the November election, but he didn't. In 2016, Trump lost Nevada by 2.4% of the vote. It was a lesson. If Trump wanted to win Nevada in 2020, he better oppose the nuclear waste project going forward. So it was a surprise when Trump included $120 million to fund relicensing for Yucca Mountain in his first skinny budget. It seems so unlike Trump. Later, the administration walked it back with a statement from an unnamed official 
that the administration would not take a stand for or against licensing Yucca Mountain without talking to all the stakeholders and a recommendation from the Department of Energy. During a sit-down with regional reporters, I asked Office of Management and Budget Head Mick Mulvaney about the Yucca Mountain money. Mulvaney said it was his idea to include funding for Yucca. Mystery solved. When he was a congressman, Mulvaney's district included nuclear power plants in two counties. He had introduced legislation supporting interim nuclear waste storage, quote, until Yucca can open, close quote. But that path was political suicide for Trump. By the time he ran for re-election in 2020, Trump definitively opposed the Nevada nuclear waste project. And still he lost Nevada. By one Trump metric, Sean Spicer was a smashing success. Ratings. When Spicer was at the podium, daily briefings became must-see TV. Cable networks halted regular program to tune into the daily televised verbal sparring between press and press secretary. The public loved it. While Sean's ratings were huge, he was playing to an audience of one, the president who watched the sessions like a hawk the president who loved to humiliate Spicer. In May, on the third stop of his first foreign trip, Trump met with Pope Francis at the Vatican. He deliberately excluded Spicer, a devout Catholic, in his meeting with the pontiff. The press corps, frequently at odds with Spicer, shuddered in sympathy. There was a happy ending. Shortly after Spicer's forced resignation, he met the pontiff when he joined a delegation of lawmakers on a trip to Rome. The second press secretary, Spicer's one-time deputy, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, lasted nearly two years. The daughter of Mike Huckabee, the affable former governor of Arkansas, she was the position's longest survivor, in part because, as Trump grew more petulant about the press corps, she halted formal briefings for weeks at a time. 41 consecutive days, then 42 days toward the end. Sarah Sanders gave as good as she got. One night with Sanders, her husband and kids turned up at the Red Hen restaurant in Lexington, Virginia. She was asked to leave because she worked for Trump. Sanders wore that uncivil act against her as a badge of honor. Trump showed a marked preference for female press secretaries. He believed they softened his image helped him appeal to women voters, and confounded critics who accused him of sexism. While Trump chose a woman to replace Spicer as press secretary, he named a man to fill Spicer's other job, White House communications director. That would be the big-talking Anthony Scaramucci. The mooch, as he was known, lasted as communications director all of 10 days. Scaramucci blew up his credibility during a profanity-laced phone call with The New Yorker's Ryan Lizza. We know exactly what the mooch said because Scaramucci never got an agreement that the entire talk was off the record. And Lizza taped it. What you're trying to do? I'm not, I'm not Steve Bannon. No. I'm not trying to suck my own <laughs> I'm not trying to build my own brand off the strength of the president. Yeah, but don't you I'm think here to serve the country. The mooch also threatened to fire the entire press staff if Lizza did not reveal the source of a leak, which he would never do. Trump's second chief of staff, the newly installed John Kelly, fired Scaramucci in short order. In 2020, 
a rebranded Scaramucci voted for Joe Biden. People always ask me to name my favorite Trump press secretary, an exercise I would liken to asking an inmate to name his favorite jailer. It was an impossible job I wouldn't wish on anyone. Trump's third press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, apparently figured out that briefings presented a constant no-win dynamic. As personal as Stephanie was in private, no one will ever give her high marks because during her eight months as press secretary, she never gave a formal briefing. Trump's fourth and final press secretary was Kayleigh McEnany. Model thin and bubbling with enthusiasm about Trump, McEnany embodied the sort of female Trump surrogate the left loved to dismiss as lightweights. In fact, Kaylee studied international politics at Georgetown School of Foreign Service and studied abroad at Oxford. Yes, that Oxford. She got her law degree from Harvard, so dismiss her at your own peril. Like her boss in the Oval Office and many other White House aides, Kaylee got COVID about a month before the election. The result? A reason to halt briefings for what turned into a month. After Trump lost, yes, he lost the 2020 election, McEnany's briefings were rare. Her last briefing on January 7 wasn't really a briefing because after reading a short statement, she took no questions. It's like the circle of life for press briefings. But in this instance, the first and last press secretary's first briefings start with a statement and end with no answers. In the weeks after Trump lost, many White House staffers just stopped showing up for work, especially after January 6. On occasion, I walked into the lower press office and there would be nobody there. The briefing room had gone from a standing room only mob scene to a ghost town. I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Covering Trump. Up next, episode four, Travel with Trump. I was there on the first Trump foreign trip. Eight days, five stops in four countries on two continents, and the last, the London NATO confab, where Trump kept talking and talking and talking. Social media gave him such a ribbing, Trump left in a huff and skipped a scheduled press conference. The ego without passport ate up the spotlight as a successful foreign policy delivered no new wars, a U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, the Abraham Accords, love letters from Kim Jong-un, and bonding opportunities with Russian President Vladimir Putin. It started in Riyadh. It was an amazing adventure, and now I get to share the stories with you. One thing I've learned putting together this podcast, covering the Trump White House feels a lot better in the rearview mirror. This podcast was produced by Beowulf Rockland and Rosabelle Hine of Two Squared Media Productions, with editing assistance from Lauren Little. I want to thank the Las Vegas Review Journal and C-SPAN for material cited in this podcast.